Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. There's window patterns in there that are groups of two and groups of three that are meant to represent the black keys on a piano and how they're you know, patterned. So we tried to use these very subtle things in ways to, to move the effects of music around the shell of the building, not necessarily overtly, but more subtly. So those are the fun things you can do when you've got that mass of a building. We had effectively been able to acoustically separate these things so that you could you could literally have a teen and we proved it out right there, right, right on test day, right? Like, the teen dance was doing their thing on the other side of the lobby and a flute solo was going on in the performance hall and neither were any the wiser. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Cherise Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guests today are David Cole, Principal in Charge, and Sean Pauley, Project Architect from Cushing Tarot, with offices in, okay, Montana, Colorado, Idaho, Louisiana, Minnesota, Texas, and Washington. Design Principal David Cole seeks to inspire creativity on projects, with clients, and by orchestrating teams to harness their talents while meeting the tangible needs of project scope and budget. Through his collaborative approach, David brings clients into the design process to arrive at more meaningful design solutions. Sean Pauly is a project architect with specific expertise in education and government markets. Through this work, he has become adept at stakeholder engagement, consensus and relationship building, and construction administration for large impactful projects, such as campus master planning, sports facilities, performance halls, theatrical spaces, courthouses, and emergency services facilities, among many others. The project we are going to talk about today is the Flathead Valley Community College, Paul D. Wackles College Center in Kalispell, Montana. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com podcast. In Kalispell, Montana, where the majestic mountains embrace the Flathead Valley, the Paul D. Wackles College Center at Flathead Valley Community College is a remarkable display of innovation, vision, and a harmonious blend of the arts and athletics. The 67,000-square-foot facility emerged from a dream to bridge the cultural gap in the region, not only to remedy an artistic dearth, but also the absence of athletic spaces on campus. I think the biggest performance hall or the best venue up until this point was maybe a 300, 350 seat high school auditorium. In, and it's an old one, probably from the 60s, if not earlier. So the recognition that we just were ready, the Valley was ready for a, a fine arts center with you know impeccable acoustics. That was the impetus for this. 
And Jane Karras is her name. She's the president of the Flathead Valley Community College. And she sort of had the vision to, to put this in motion. And I think it was a, a brilliant vision. She also realized that athletics didn't really exist on campus in any meaningful way. And so the thinking for her mind was, let's put together a, a college center that includes a, a, a thousand seat fine arts, so essentially triples or more the capacity that we currently have. And then combine that with a athletics component, which is a large gymnasium and other things to sort of put it all together in a college center for the, for the students, but also for the community. And I think that was the impetus for the center itself. Yeah, well, and, and you mentioned, you know, not a venue you know, in the valley like this, right? But I think it goes even beyond that because if if anybody knows anything about Kalispell, if you've been here, I mean, we are we are the very tip corner of Northwest Montana. You know, we are almost Canada and almost Idaho, and we are in the mountains, and we are a pretty remote pocket. So I think I think this this venue is is pretty impressive for a very large region that that doesn't have anything like this in anywhere around, right? And just takes takes some travel time to get anywhere out here, right? So to have one now in our backyard is just, it's, it's wonderful. This project stood out not just for its grandeur, but also for its unique funding model. Well, it was actually entirely private funds for this project. It was all donations, which is pretty remarkable. That is uncommon. There may have been some loans at the end, and Sean, maybe you know more about them than I do. But my recollection, this is all private and that's one amazing thing about Jane. Uh, she is just really, really good at connecting and really, really good at uh, getting out there. And, and so this is not the first time she's done this. Major projects on the campus have all been driven by private donations. And so I think it was Paul Wachholz who uh, donated. He got his name on the building. And so he was the guy who really kind of set it in motion. And then a lot of people followed. So, yeah, no, no, no bonding required. Pretty cool. That is flipping amazing. <laughs> I did not expect to get that answer. That is really, that is totally and completely out of the ordinary. Yeah. Wow. Color me impressed. (laughs) You're right, Charisse. And and a lot of the work I do is education-based and it is, it is passing bonds for the local schools through the state and that sort of thing. Right. And that's, that's the funding mechanism. So it is, it is really impressive. It's, It's worth highlighting it again, right? How actually impressive it is that Jane and the crew over there at FVCC, the community college, the local community college, they do such an amazing job. And they, the way that they entrench themselves in the community and give back, it's obviously reciprocated. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful mutual synergy we have in the community. We're lucky for it, no doubt. With a bold vision for a grand fine arts center with over a thousand seats seamlessly integrated with a spacious gymnasium, Cushing Tarot was engaged to bring this audacious fusion that defied convention to life. Well, actually, when Jane approached us with that program, it was true. We're talking about a very refined space and then a space that holds sweaty people. Those are not spaces you'd normally jam together. So how do we actually do that in a manner that is appropriate for both? We actually did think about that, too, because should we have separate entries? Should we have separate lobbies, keep them completely apart? Or should we come up with a way to actually utilize it? Because even in terms of square footage, we couldn't really necessarily afford to have two big old lobbies for these things. In the end, uh, the gymnasium, which really became a combination of a gym and also really uh, just an event space, really, they were allowed to share the main entry, which is primarily used for performance, but it's also used for anything related to the event side of things. And so to separate the sweaty, if you will, there is a separate entry at the far end of the project that actually faces more toward the campus and even the student housing, which allows then students to access daily separately then from the performance side of things, if that makes any sense. That way we could control that. And most of the refined entry, if you will, comes through the front door. And then thinking about it in, in terms of how those spaces work together or work separately, we actually did almost create that, that lobby itself, if you will, is really just sort of a literally like a void or a glass box that divides these two big spaces separately. And that is what severs them, what keeps them apart, but it's also what they share. So it becomes this formal front entry. So in, in, in many ways, I think it turned into a, a positive to be able to work that way. Yeah, I, David, you're not you're not wrong in, you know, how many times during design, the conversation between like three piece suits and yoga pants, right, came up. It's like these <laughs> these two are trying to merge and become one. Yeah. And we got to be really sensitive and careful about uh, timing and scheduling of, of events. And how do you how do you do that? And 
I think the other piece of that, there's something to be said about the efficiencies we gained in being able to use a shared lobby, a shared bank of restrooms. I mean, some of these, both of those programs take a lot of plumbing fixtures, right? To be able to support that many people in either one at any given time. If you were to build those separately, you got double the amount of plumbing fixtures, right? Because they each have to have their own. And so there was a lot of really good overlap that actually did make sense and became economical, right? Because because there is, you know, on surface, they look very, very separate and different and they are, but they did have some overlap and we capitalized on that. And we were able to kind of put it together in the right spots and, and make the one building work really well together. The program features McLaren Hall, a 1,000-plus seat performing arts center with state-of-the-art acoustics and the flexibility to accommodate concerts, lectures, dance performances, and musical theater productions. Additionally, the facility houses the Stinson Family Event Center, a dual-court gymnasium with breathtaking northeastern views, fitness center, and flexible health and wellness space for yoga, my favorite, Pilates, and other classes. A reception hall and art gallery connect McLaren Hall in the Stinson Family Event Center, while an outdoor amphitheater rounds out the performance and gathering spaces. If you think about it again, the lobby splitting the two, right? So the, the gym component is, is its event space, but it's gym and intramural function for, for college students on campus. So it's got it's got the associated locker rooms, a small fitness center with some gym equipment. It's got oh, we'll call it a yoga studio, but it doubles as a kind of a flexible space that that can do a lot of different functions because it's just one large multi-purpose room, right? So, and that's that's kind of that side of the building. But then when we go over to the the music side, the the performance hall side, there's obviously the large 1,000 plus seat performance hall. And then down in that lower level is is all of the necessary dressing rooms, loading docks, green room, those sort of things that that support that space that you need to function um, on a on a performance night, right? Then then upstairs is the music department for the school. So they've got a couple classrooms, uh, like a keyboard classroom, a standard classroom, practice rooms, so soundproof. I think we had six, six or so individual practice rooms for the music students to, to, to study in, practice in, and small recital space. So there's a, there is actually a smaller performance hall, a recital hall in that upper level as well. That, that kind of doubles as another music classroom, but is actually like a little sister to the, the main performance hall. It has a lot of the same acoustic properties, and it's just a smaller venue space that works great. It's a ton of fun in there because we were able to put some daylight into that one and, and be in the smaller venue, piano soloist or something can, can happen in there on, on another given night. We don't have concessions. They do that with vendors come in. So they can serve some drinks and some small things, but they just kind of pull that out into the lobby when it's needed. The, the multi-purpose room I was talking about from the aerobics or yoga side has things like a sink and, and a small counter space, and that can double as like a prep area, a warming space uh, where, where a caterer could come in and, and operate out of that and serve right into the adjacent lobby. So we didn't go with a built-in, a built-in. It was part of the program initially. We did look at having a kitchen and then it became a small warming kitchen. And then it became, you know what, let's just cater the events and give them a space to prep that was a cost savings item too, right? And it, and it actually gave them a lot of flexibility. You know, another opportunity to showcase local other vendors within the community, give them a chance to be present at the show and advertise what they can do and be a partnership with the college and the community. And, and it's all, it's all kind of goes back to that, that synergy, that, that culture they're building within the, the community proper, right? So it became a really good move that way, I think. And we can't forget, there's a, there's a pretty wonderful art gallery down in that main lobby and they are pulling some really cool shows. They're getting on a, a circuit for a bunch of different art shows and, and exhibits. That's a wonderful space too. And then just the opposite of that, when you walk out the back lobby, we, we tend to hone in, David and I are architects, so we hone in so hard on the building itself, but there is just a beautiful landscaped amphitheater on the backside of this thing that overlooks the pond, the natural pond that's there. And, and it is 
one of my favorite spots and moments of this entire building is sitting outside on that grass amphitheater and listening to one of the guitar the guitarists come out on that little stage we've got down there and and all of a sudden we've got an outdoor venue as part of this thing it, it is it is truly wonderful that that piece of it i can't forget about that and it wasn't even part of the plan yeah yes it wasn't even part of the plan that was a serendipitous addition and it happened as a result by the way of the fact that we pushed this building onto the hillside it wasn't if you even know this, Sean, originally we were going to build this building. It was my idea to put it on where the parking lot is because I thought it was a better design to align with the pedestrianism of the rest of the campus. And But, uh, of course, cost ruled and we can't, you know, we'd have to build a whole new parking lot if we did that. So we pushed it to the edge, kept the parking lot where it is, pushed it onto the hillside, and then uh, the hill became uh, something we had to deal with. And uh, the fact that we originally intended for the gym to be, I guess it was going to be on the lower level, the same level as the performance theater. We were going to have to excavate all kinds of material so they both walked out. Well, economy drove that choice to bring this the uh, gym up to the level of the main floor entry. Therefore, we didn't have to excavate, but now we had to hill to deal with. So we said, let's build an amphitheater. It was an afterthought that turned into a really amazing amenity. The backdrop of this whole amphitheater, it faces sort of north pretty much north northeast a little bit northeast-ish and i think the pond is the backdrop so it turned out to be a really really great spot and again that's one of the discovery of some of these things you don't mean for them to even happen but when they do you're just like gosh i meant to do that right i told them meant to do that <laughs> but well and it's the hill the hill could have been such an obstacle right and then it became our suddenly our best friend right and it did something totally above and beyond and yeah i i know they've had a few events there in the summer and Gosh, the sun sets to the west, to your back as you're watching a show to the northeast, and they, they've pulled food trucks around to, to grab a bite to eat. And, and, you know, here, it's this pretty high-end space, I'll say, right? I mean, it's these events are, are really nice, and, and you're talking, you know, suit-type occasions, right? Well, they make it kid-friendly, and we go out onto the amphitheater, and we sit in the grass, and it's it's a total another experience within this building. It just we're just overlapping layers and layers and layers of functionality. It's it's wonderful the things that they can do inside the space, outside the space. You know, it's tucked around the behind the building, so it's not influenced by the parking lot. So you feel almost it's like the backyard, right? It's like going to a backyard barbecue. You're you're tucked <laughs> away. You're enjoying yourself. You don't have to worry about the commotion and the traffic. It's it's nice. It's wonderful. The Wackles College Center was not merely a structure, but a visual symphony, bringing the theme of music in motion to life. We looked at it utilitarian-ish at first. You know, we wanted to sort of craft it too, so it wasn't just a you know utilitarian building. We had the opportunity to create essentially a work of art. It is about art. The building's about performing arts, and so we. We started thinking about how do we craft the building to be represent that. And I don't know if you if you picked up on it, but even the movement of the shell of the building itself, we actually used the, the angles and things that you see in the shell of the building. It actually was a derivative of like the movement of a conductor's baton. We were like, if you move your baton up, you move it up again. So the shapes were actually evocative really of that movement. In fact, the original design, Sean might remember this as well, they were actually swooped curves, each of those shapes that are now angled. So the budget drove it to a straight line, which happens all the time. But uh, we kind of expected that might happen. But we started with curves with the initial renderings and then moved it to angles. And then the angles started to also be evocative a bit of the backdrop of the, of the Rocky Mountains behind them. So these tilts and turns of the shell were intentional to move those uh, ideas forward and at least in into the uh, design of the shell. The very subtle things that represented music and not necessarily in quite a literal way, but like if you look at the window framing and the entry, there's this window wall. It is very horizontal mullions. And then every you know X number of feet was a very uh, definitive vertical one. And if you look at it and just think about that area, it was actually designed to look like essentially the frets of a guitar or any stringed instrument like that. And there's window patterns in there that are groups of two and groups of three that are meant to represent the black keys on a piano and how they're you know, patterned. So we tried to use these very subtle things in ways to, to move the effects of music around the shell of the building, not necessarily overtly, but more subtly. So those are the fun things you can do when you've got that mass of a building. David's starting to talk about the poetry, the poetry woven within. There's, there's really something to be said about what David's alluding to here too, because it's easy to see how economical and efficient it was with program, right? These two programs, sharing some program, becoming efficient in that way. 
I have to highlight, I have to applaud our design team in our restraint. I think we did a very good job, and I think Cushing Terrell pushes for this, is to find the moments where one thing can always do two things, right? And if we can make that happen, we're incredibly successful, and, and now all of a sudden the building is is working more efficiently, right? And, and for instance, I mean, David's talking about poetry within the windows. Well, we needed windows anyway, so if it can be more meaningful, that's great, right? It's hidden all within this building. When, when we look at even the juxtaposition between these spaces, the performance hall and the gym. We wanted the shared lobby, but if you look at, at the lobby, we, we sunk one into the earth and we kept one high, and that was part of a reaction to the landscape and to the hill, right? And so it was an effort to keep excavation minimal. But the volume of that performance hall was massive, right? And it just had to be that that height and that width and that length. And so how do you how do you work with that next to a gym that's also big but not nearly as large right and something that happened very uniquely to this building i think when you enter into a performance hall most of the time you walk in at the main level and you go up to a balcony right well here we flip that on its head you walk in and you're at the balcony and then you process down a grand staircase to the main lobby the main entrance to the theater down low, right? And so this is all driven by the hill and an effort for economy. And it did it allowed for some very interesting things, which there's a massive hole in that upper lobby. And there's just bridges that span across to get you into the balcony level. Well, it's not just a hole, an atrium for the sake of an atrium. It actually works to separate the two spaces acoustically. The less structure we have connecting the two, the more we limit the sound transferring across that structure and infiltrating the other space, right? And so the normal person walking in is just going to say, ah, oh, this is a beautiful lobby. Oh, it's an awesome curve. And the, that hole down below, you know, connects you to the lower lobby. And it's a visual, fun visual experience, but it's doing so much more. And we found efficiency and economy in that. That was our, as a design team, we kind of beat that home and we tried for it in every little nook and cranny that if, we, if we're doing one thing, it almost has to do two always, or we're not efficient enough. There was a delicate balance between functionality and artistry, where every detail, down to a curved guardrail in the lobby, played a crucial role in encapsulating the fusion of form and function. It's the one element that's on a curve. Everything else in the building is very linear, rectilinear, square lines, rhythms. And it's this divergence, right? Well, a normal railing has a four-foot baluster and infill between those balusters. And we could have just plopped any old thing, any old beautiful thing, and it, and it would have been okay, right? But we were diligent about detailing that such that it it had this consistent run, these, these vertical fins that were or continues unbroken by any pattern. It's just continuous all the way across that curve. And as you walk by that thing, it opens up in a way that you get to see through it in moments and it closes off in others. And it's this really fun, it becomes dynamic in a space that is otherwise stagnant, right? And it's just wood and steel, right? It was literally a steel fin that we replicated 200 times down that curve and we slapped some wood on it to warm it up. But in that orientation of the curve, it actually does something totally different. And as you walk by it, you know, you, it opens up visually and then it closes off. And my favorite moment, though, is when you get downstairs. You walk past this railing, you get downstairs, and now you're looking up through that hole in the atrium and you see that curve railing again. And as somebody else walks by, it plays with light and shadow as they, they're body moves across that thing and it literally looks like somebody is plucking the strings of a harp and you don't notice it right like it you're down there and you see it but because it's a curve and we were diligent about it being uninterrupted pattern and it's like you know what the detail matters right it just really really matters and you'll never you never experience that and maybe now now that i've i've opened it up Everybody's going to see it now, right? But I, I looked for it, you know, my first time in a concert there, and it was, it was so important. And it's, it's taking that technical. Very, we need a guardrail. It has to be there for safety. Well, we're going to do it out of steel and wood, which are two of the most simple materials that have been around forever. 
and just the way we did it made it musical, made it dynamic, made it really, really fun. Cushing Terrell went through a meticulous process to determine the materiality of the structure. So the, the assembly of the walls, I mean, I think you can, you can clearly see the concrete, right? The, the two big spaces, the performance hall and the gym, we landed on precast concrete. And that became the right answer for a number of reasons, economy actually being one of them too. And typically like the a precast comes with a high dollar amount, it's kind of a premium product, right? But when you get to this volume and this size, this, you know, the performance hall itself had to be so tall, so wide, so long and unencumbered. No columns. We got we to gotta make this thing work. And it needed mass for acoustics because those low frequency sounds want to escape. And so we needed the mass to keep them in. So concrete. Well, at that size, we actually in Kalispell, we're in a seismic zone, seismic category D, which is pretty impressive. And to work around that and get the structural capacity out of that at that height and that scale, precast became the obvious answer. Anything else was going to just balloon on us really quick and, and hard to achieve those strengths and those spans and get the mass out of it that we needed. And so not only is it precast, but it's got the, the layer of insulation in between two layers of concrete. So it's a sandwich panel. So it carries the mass and the thermal properties. And lo and behold, you know, there's 114 panels, I think, total between the two boxes. And, and some are 55 feet tall and the others are 35 feet tall. And they, the contractor was able to set those things 10 a day. And we had those those boxes erected almost within two weeks. And with two and a half years of construction, of these things under construction, those concrete boxes were the first things in place. And they kept their temperature pretty even keel throughout the whole length of construction. I'd, I'd show up on site in, in the heat of the summer and it was comfortably cool in that concrete box. And it wasn't conditioned. They didn't have walls or air, con, air handlers in there yet of the other spaces, right? It was literally just the concrete boxes and they were tempered. They were holding their own because of that thermal mass that's inherent in those concrete panels, right? And so they were obviously the primary structure, the primary spaces and the materiality that was correct for a lot of reasons. And it helps with the the high swings that you're talking about. The warm summers, the cold winters, those stay pretty tempered. Now that the, the supporting spaces were steel. We went steel construction and then we gave it a skin and we used our resources, our local resources. We got really good relationships with our generals here locally and we used them as a sounding board, right? We said, what's efficient, cost-effective? We can do it this way. We can do it this way. And ultimately, you know, with their help and guidance, we landed on doing that steel skeleton and cladding it with what you, what you would call, it's like a bonded, uh, rigid insulation with a plywood bonded face, right? And that gave us a really clean, solid surface. It gave us a really good thermal layer and then a nice nailing nailing layer for any amount of siding or whatever we wanted to skin the thing with. But everything was handled thermally behind that layer and, and structurally worked really, really well. We spent a lot of time thinking about how we can not make them. Should we dress them up? Should we cover them with something? Should we, you know, should we let it be? In the end, it was like, let's just be honest about the fact that these are just big, huge friggin' concrete panels. My mom said, honesty is the best policy. I think it's true even in architecture in many cases. Let's let these panels be what they are. We were so honest about these panels. We even let them just be the raw materials, the sides as you enter into this, this elegant lobby. You've got these really rough, raw concrete panels just expressed in the interior of the lobby. And we, we sort of contrast that with soft, warm you know, wood in the balcony. We inserted some wood into little slits we put in the, in the precast very carefully, randomly to represent Actually, if you look at that elevation of the interior on the performance hall side, there's little wood slats in there, and those were just inserted into the slots that we put in there to represent uh, what looks like, well, you can imagine what you want, but it's supposed to represent player piano music or maybe the slider on a mixer board, that kind of thing. Just And it also just animates and adds warmth to the concrete, but just, just let the concrete be what it is. When you pull that concrete out of their forms, you never know quite what you're going to get. And so you do see some variety in these panels, and we just let's just let it be. Let's, we thought of should we paint it? Should we uh, should we sandblast it? Nah, let's just leave it. There's differences in these panels, but we're like let's let's just own that and love it. So in the end, we've actually gotten a lot of a lot of compliments. Surprisingly, you would think that in a place like this where people expect pure elegance, that they would 
say, gosh, what are these rough panels? But in the end, I think people appreciate just the fact that they are what they are. I'm going to give you a little credit, David, because I think those those little reveals we embedded in that in that precast, I think it was you that really pushed to to work within what they could do right at at the concrete plant. And you'll notice we we stuck all vertical. We kept all of the we wanted to add a little texture to the thing, right? But not overdo it. But we were diligent about keeping it vertical. And I think David, that was that was a lot of you. I'll give you credit for that. But because these panels get set and, and you know if they're a quarter inch off or a half inch off and you've got a horizontal line trying to track across that thing, you're gonna see that skip and that jump across that panel. And so knowing that in advance and building a texture or talking through a texture that won't invite that opportunity to happen, right? Like let's let's not even allow for that potential misstep, right? Let's keep this thing within the realm of what we know it's going to do, embrace it and run with it, right? And so I think we did, it was some very smart moves in regards to the concrete as well that that helped it. Yes, it was raw, right? But we helped it gain a little elegance along the way too, right? I think there was some very intentional moves to be done. Those panels are what 60 55 feet tall. That's a pretty good sized panel. Those had to be, and Sean knows this better than anybody. There weren't a lot of people in remote Northwest Montana that can even make those. The closest place though was Missoula. We were lucky. We had a place that was able to do, we were, went down there and toured the site, walked around. They showed us how best to do this and how best to do it in a way that we, we could actually apply some of those uh, techniques and those and some of the textures that Sean's talking about. We didn't want to just use like a standard print. We just said, let's just do a raw panel, but we're going to add some vertical slots in there. So they showed us how they could do that with various techniques. And we hadn't done that where we weren't sure what we were going to get. So honestly, that was a good, I think the biggest cost too for these is probably the shipping, right? We had to ship a couple hundred panels up from, from Missoula. Um, yeah. It isn't so much yep. the material, it's the shipping. Yeah. That was quite the hurdle to overcome too. Again, like, like I say, we, you know, during design, we were talking to our generals to give us insights and constructability, but here we actually, we were pretty heavily in conversations with the precast plant as well. And then again, Department of Transportation, because we knew if they're going to come from Missoula, which is two hours away, well, what's the rating on the road? What what can the road take as far as a weight and capacity? And then and what's the width and the length that we can even ship, right? Well, we got to get them here somehow. And so the max width to ship is 12 feet. Well, our panels are eight feet because they had to be this thick to get the strength out of them. So that thickness and that weight ratio, we had to shrink down to eight foot of width to ship within the weight category that we could on a truck, right? So they came two panels at a time, eight foot wide, 55 long. And and we so we worked with the Department of Transportation real early on, and we had the foresight to ask the question during design. So we didn't get to a point where gosh, we really wanted those 12 foot panels and now we can't do it. Right. <laughs> so there was a ton of checks and back checks and run the lap again. And even to the point where working with the precast plant at 55 feet long, everybody thinks of concrete as so strong and so rigid, right? But they take 28 days to cure fully. Well, at that length and that scale, if they were to lay flat in the concrete yard, we would end up with a banana board like you'd get your two by four from Home Depot. It's going to be cupped and warped and all kinds of wonky, and we can't have that out of the concrete. So our structural engineers worked with the precast plant to not only design the panels, but we designed a custom steel crib for them to have in their plant on site so when they cast these these panels, they can pluck them and sit them on edge and let them cure on their edge and not cup and warp. So they came to us as true and plumb and square as they possibly could, right? It, it's the level of thought and care that went into just the concrete was monumental. Inside, with a 1,000 plus seat performing arts center as a major component of the project, Acoustic excellence was paramount. We should have had Jessica on this call, David. She was she was our interior designer here within within Cushing Terrell, and she did she did such a phenomenal job. Just all the accolades go to her, no doubt. But she worked pretty intimately with our acoustic consultants. 
I think, I mean, as beautiful as the lobby is and all the other supporting spaces, I think that that performance hall needs needs to take a lot of the credit here. I think the moves in there, every single surface in that space is incredibly intentional and purposeful. The, the space was designed around the idea of unamplified sound, which means that you don't necessarily need a microphone and speakers to project the sound from the stage to the very tip top seat in the balcony. The building itself, that space itself is working as an instrument shaped and textured and masked to push the sound from a single soloist on stage without a microphone all the way back to where it needs to go to every seat in the house. And that being said, I mean, I can't, I can't unravel all of those surfaces, but we've got some smooth surfaces, some textured that are like wood slats that are different sizes and shapes, and they're meant to diffuse the sound when they get hit. Some of the surfaces are meant to absorb the sound. The shaping was incredibly intelligent or, or intentional. Those cheek walls, as they're called, they they kind of flank the stage right and left. They're the curved wood pieces that you see on either side of that proscenium stage were the most important piece of that. And, and they've got five or six layers of sheetrock on those things because they have to push, again, those low frequency sounds without that mass would go right through that wall. Well, we needed them to bounce off of that and go to the audience members. And the right shaping, you know, we studied it in model after model, and the right shaping and the right smooth texture really worked to, to make sure. And, and it's fun because I got to walk around after the thing was built and do all the testing with the acoustic consultants when they're there. And I've learned so much from this project, you know, the acoustics and everything, you know, you learn a little bit about it in school and, and in projects, but this was on a whole nother level. And I took the time to ask the whys and really understand it. And our consultants at Threshold Acoustics were great about taking the time to teach me. And it's fun, you know, sound, sound waves and light waves travel very similarly. And so, you know, when we were testing the thing, we shined a light from the center of the stage off one of those cheek walls. And it hit a hot spot and you can walk around every single seat in the house and you see a hot spot and that's the sound wave. That's the light wave bouncing directly to you as a listener. And no matter where you sit, you are seeing a hot spot off of that. It's a visual representation of the sound, you know, that that's happening when, when a performance is going on and it was just proof positive. And it's really fun to go through those exercises and see how effective we truly were. Right. And I talked to the acoustic consultants. I said, how, how did we get this so good? <laughs> and, and they said, well, we stuck to the basics. Like that performance hall, it really dove back into the fundamentals of acoustics that, that have been tried and true for years in performance halls. We, we had curves instead of straight lines. And we, we did all of the right dimensional things, right? And we just, we trusted them. We leaned on them. They went back to the basics and we, and it won the day, right? I think it was a, a good exercise, a good testament, and the finishes really, really mattered in that space. During acoustical testing, the team had a firsthand experience that was proof positive that the acoustic design worked. Our acoustic consultants flew out and they were in there testing the space with some of the orchestra. They had a rehearsal that night. And so our acoustic consultants are sitting in there with all the testing equipment, listening, and lo and behold, we scheduled it on this night. We didn't realize there was also a Teen dance that was scheduled to go on in the gym and you know they came walking out and didn't even realize this thing was going on if, if we had effectively been able to acoustically separate these things so that you could you could literally have a teen and we proved it out right there right right on test day right like the teen dance was doing their thing on the other side of the lobby and a flute solo was going on in the performance hall and neither were any the wiser so how did they achieve this remarkable performance? The acoustic consultants did a really good job of explaining it to me. And I'm, so I'm going to take one of their lines and, and say, okay, we've got these two concrete boxes, and then we're going to put steel to create this floor and this roof and connect the two. And they compared it to the old telephone you'd make as a kid, you know, from the top of your treehouse down to the ground. And it's a tin can and a tin can and a string across and it actually works there's there's science behind that and why that works and the sound in one tin can 
excites the molecules of the string and sound travels through that string and makes it to the other tin can. And so if you think about that analogy as our two concrete boxes and the steel is the string in between, if there's a rigid connection, it will translate through from one space to the other. Sound will penetrate. So our whole goal in that lobby was to cut the string, cut the steel, right? And so this is where it became a hole in the floor is great, right? That's a beautiful thing for us. And then we still needed access to the balcony. So let's do two slender bridges. And those, those bridges are, they're sitting on a resilient pad, a rubber pad. And so they're not actually rigidly connected to the performance hall. That connection where the bridge meets the, the concrete of the performance hall, that bridge is just floating there and ever so gently resting on that rubber pad and is able to move and wiggle. And it's, it's like how we would do a seismic joint. In all honesty, we're, we called it a, an acoustic isolation joint, but it's just as though we were creating a seismic joint and allowing these two spaces to, to move independently a little bit. And so there is no rigid connection between boxes. And even up on the roof level, we, we truly did use a seismic joint, a bellow in the roof, a, a piece of foam that we stopped the structure there. We supported it in a different way. And there's a true break and a clean delineation between one side and the other. And you can see it if you look careful, you know, in the carpet of the lobby, it, it does tie into the reception desk. Right in front of the reception desk is where this this joint happens too in the in the carpet of that lobby, and and you do have to step across it when you walk down the hall towards the music department and that wing of the building, and that's that's probably where it manifests itself most visibly, but you wouldn't think of it; it just looks like a threshold at a door that you would normally step over. But that's there was a three inch gap that we kept away from from both sides of the building, and it's all right in that line, right where the the performance hall. Would otherwise touch the lobby and that's a clean sever <laughs> if, if you want to call it and, and it worked it was it was tricky it was a very tricky detail an additional element that aided in this noise isolation system was the inclusion of entry vestibules they factor in at every entry point and every door into the theater they build what's called a sound and light lock and so it's a it's basically a vestibule. It's like you would, you know, entering into the front of the building. It's but there it's for thermal reasons. It's to you know let one door close, and then you know the temperature of the building, you know, keep keep intact, right? And then you open the second set of doors. Well, it's similarly, it's it's we had a vestibule at every entry point into the theater, which worked as a light and sound lock and enough distance between those doors that that if you were to open that first set of doors and noise or light were to penetrate in that door has to close before you open the second set of doors and then enter in. And so hopefully there's not a lot of that happening mid performance, right? And they have ushers and patrons, you know, patrons are supposed to kind of respect that a little bit, but but if that happens, right, there is that that level of care right at each entry point to also facilitate that. Because you you I mean you talked about sound, right? But light is all, light pollution is also one that we had to worry about, right? That's, that's how you handle, we handled that, that side of it. Within the performance hall, a remarkable ceiling design created a superior acoustic environment, including massive ductwork to mitigate noise, an innovative catwalk system, and curved acoustic panels. They're a kinetics product, which they, they are a company, they make, they make acoustic products. And so it's a curved, it's a hard panel, and it's got a what's called a gel coat, a gel coating. So they're smooth. We wanted the sound to go up there and bounce back down to the audience. Um, some sound is meant to go past them and get absorbed up in, in the stratosphere of the catwalk that's all black that you don't even know what's going on up there, right? But so there's there's a duality to that ceiling. It's kind of this false ceiling that pushes some of the sound back down and lets some of it escape up up and above. The volume from those panels up to the actual ceiling is, I mean, it's extreme because there's these oversized ducts that you could walk through up there to push sound very, very quietly. This is beyond my, my pay grade, but the mechanical engineering of those ducts is so oversized to push the air very slowly so it doesn't make noise. But also, you're right, the volume is intended to draw some of those acoustics up past those and be absorbed in the, in the ceiling above. But it's got to be, what, 25 feet or something? 
well, yeah, the panels themselves are are 55, and so I want to say to to the roof line. I mean, we're we're talking 40 feet tall or higher, right? 40 45 probably. Yeah. To the underside of the roof deck in there. I mean, it's massive. It's a long. It's a lot longer further up to the ceiling than you think it is above those right. panels. I guess is what we're saying. And they have a very full catwalk up there that yeah you don't you don't see, and it's a very nice a lot of a lot of catwalks and and a lot of these performance spaces they end up. I mean, that's where you. That's where you skinny up, right? That's where it's uh, you know a lot of times you're forcing these these theatrical personnel to kind of clamber through or duck through or crawl through, and and we have a really robust catwalk system up there, and they have I know that the users have appreciated that it's actually really functional, very functional for them. Continuing the effort of balance between functionality and artistry, the acoustic panels served more than just their practical use. Really acoustically. We needed three rows of those white ceilings, the closest ones to the stage. And the last two rows were not acoustically necessary, I'll say, the ones that are above the balcony. And so we waffled. Again, Jessica, our interior designer, and I, we, we looked at it in 3D models and we studied it and we're like, do, do we get rid of these? And we just didn't have the heart to strike them, even though they weren't acoustically necessary. And I'm so glad we kept them because... What it does is it it completes the ceiling above even the people that are sitting in the balcony. So even if you buy one of those balcony seats and you're you're in there, you're up higher, normally without those, you would just see the inner workings of the catwalks. You would see all of that stuff and it would take away from the experience. So just com- com- keeping those two rows and that continuity of that ceiling coming up to that level helps those people in the balcony feel intimately part of that performance down low, right? It caps their vision and pulls them back down. So there isn't a bad seat in the house, right? I'm so glad we hung on to those. We've hid the clutter. We've made it feel complete. After five years on the project, from design to construction, David and Sean walked away with several lessons that they will take forward into future projects. That was a puzzle through the whole thing. And and during construction was no exception. And, And you find out each discipline, each industry works slightly differently. And, and you know, things like, I'll say fire protection, low voltage wiring. A lot of times we specify things like you got to have X amount of water flow for a sprinkler system in this area, but we're not going to tell you how to route it, right? Well, it became really critical that we knew that route because where is it going to cross? Where is it going to penetrate that precast? Because that precast was so full of steel and tendons and important structure buried within that if if we were to drill through that and hit one of those, the whole thing is compromised, right? The integrity of the panel, of the panel is obliterated. And so normal construction projects, they just come in, they cut their hole through the wall and they go. We didn't have that luxury, right? And so this became a, th- a thing, and, and we had the mains mapped out for fire protection, and we said, you got to hit that. You have to hit that hole. That's where it's going to come through. And, and if I were to do it again, I think I would have tried to factor in just a couple more penetration opportunities in the precast, not knowing what's going to go there, right? Let's just say, let's put a, a one-foot hole over here and another one-foot hole over there and give ourselves a little more flexibility and grace during construction. Because inevitably, there's those there's this things the the cameras, the the Wi-Fi, the WAPs up in the ceiling, right? The wireless access points, all of those things take small little low voltage cables. Well, I can't even sneak that through the precast effectively. I need a pathway for it, and you don't even know where that's going to be until you get into the construction and the drawings, and the actual installer is there, and you're talking through it, and lo and behold. Voltage can only run 300 feet before it has to have another booster or something. So you can't you can't run a whole lap around the structure and come back, right? It just those were the nuances that we had to work through to the point where we actually had to kind of go back in and reassess those concrete panels, map out where the steel was, and know that we you know we got to drill a couple more holes and we we got to make sure we miss, you know. And so those are the those are the scary scary moments, right? That you just you, yeah, you, you get nervous about, but it could have been easier, right? If we, we could have made it easier on ourselves, hindsight's twenty twenty. Now I know to work, work that grace in, <laughs> in advance. And I guess the other thing was this performance hall was 
easily one of the most complex buildings, highly technical buildings that this valley has seen to date, right? And our our pool of contractors and subcontractors, you know, they do a great job, but I don't think any of them had seen anything like this, right? And, and myself included during design, I knew this thing was getting more complex than I had ever seen before. And so I had my own learnings to do, right? And I found being on site so often and working through it during construction that I realized how valuable it is to talk to everybody. You know, we, we get so used to as architects talking to just the general, the superintendent on site, and, and he can disseminate the information to all the other parties necessary, right? Well, doing a couple laps around the building and you hear the sub, the painter talking about something and they just don't understand why it is this way. And, and I took the time. I said, look, this is for acoustics. This is why we're doing this, right? And they, they, the light bulbs went off. They went, oh my gosh, is that why we have five layers of sheetrock on this wall? I couldn't for the life of me figure it out. And I said, yeah, it's for the low, low frequency sounds. This is what we're trying to achieve. And, and you know what? That, that little bit of time I took to kind of explain the bigger picture, they latched onto it. And they were so receptive to the things we had to do that seemed so painful, right? Like, ah, we've got to build it this way. This is not fun, right? But <laughs> but it opened the door to more receptive ideas, right? To, to be able to understand why we are doing this and the value of like every hand that touches this should should be in the know on why it's important, right? And I think I think that that was one of my takeaways, you know, like let's let's be more diligent. I want myself to be more diligent. When I'm on site, I want to be talking to everybody a little bit and and pulling back the curtain, right? Here's the goals we're trying to achieve and and everybody got got on board, right? As soon as they knew the why. You know, I spend more of my time on the on the conceptual design side of things and to me the bigger the bigger one that I thought was the aha was when we thought we were going to put the gym up downstairs and we decided to pull it up. We I loved the idea of the gym being downstairs by the way for all kinds of reasons. I love the idea of coming into the lobby being able to look over a balcony down at what's happening down, all that had to be thrown out. You know, that whole idea of being able to sort of visually interact. I don't know if you remember that, Sean, but we had even started doing some some renderings of what that could look or feel like. And of course, that all gets thrown out of the window. So there's wonderful idea we think we have. But I guess the lesson is, you know, go with it, do what's right for the project, for the site and for the budget, bring the gym back up where it belongs. And then the sort of serendipitous, you know, benefit or award of that is the, the amphitheater we didn't even know we had or didn't know we could do. So, and that's a better benefit in the end. So, I guess I th- to me the lesson is, you know, never give up when you when you have ideas and they get squashed or changed for some reason. There's usually always a silver lining to that, and that's what we discovered on this one as well. I don't know. I think that's the main one that I learned, and I learned that on every project, honestly. You you never get everything you want, but inevitably, what happens is something better comes along along the way in the design process, and that's something never to forget in this business. The Paul D. Wackles College Center is not only a venue for events, but an outstanding example of thoughtful and innovative design in Northwest Montana. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. I was curious what David and Sean saw as some of the top challenges facing architecture today. I think sustainability for our industry is also something that, <laughs> I mean, it's it's huge, but I think it isn't huge enough. I think that it needs to become, and not the exception or the the one thing that's exceptional. I think it needs to be commonplace. I think it needs to be something that I think net zero has to happen sooner than later. It's just our responsibility. If you knew how much energy is used by buildings worldwide, I think it would stagger you. And we can do so much better. But economics drive a lot of that. I think I think to me sustainability is huge. We just need to get far far better at it. The one other thing that comes comes to my mind too is it, in our industry it, it feels like we haven't had a like a technological quantum leap in a while. It feels like we've been using the same stuff the same way for the most part, right? For 150 years. I mean, we've had better and improved materials. We've done things differently. We detail things better and differently now, but it still seems like it's the same sort of kit of Legos, if you will. Isn't it kind of odd when you think of it that way that we're kind of still doing it the same way for the most part? It's like we need a quantum leap in technology. And I can think of one that's started to happen. Maybe you've heard of it. There's buildings down now in Austin that are essentially a 3D printed concrete. Jerk Angles Group out of Denmark designed them. 
I forget who the builder was, but it's essentially a 3D printed homes with like a concrete mixed material. It's absolutely brilliant. That is a that is a quantum leap. And I think that we are due for more of those if we're going to keep doing what we want to do in the way we want to do it. Because it seems like it feels like we're kind of running out of options with conventional design. I, I don't have the answer to that one, but I think that the people that are focusing on innovation in, in construction and materials in this industry are they are the ones that are going to win. I'm really looking forward to working with some of those new Legos, if you will. One of the things that really bugs me about our industry is is so often I feel like our profession can unfortunately get reduced to just aesthetics and trends. It's too easily the the verbiage that, oh, as an architect, all you do is pick colors and materials, right? And and I just that's not the case. And it can't get that reduced. I think back of the architects of old, right, who were classically trained and they embodied poetry and symbolism and playing with light and shadow and these things that make these environments so much more meaningful and purposeful. And I think this building that we have been talking about today is one of those good examples ripe with a lot of that, that I, I would hope the industry continues to push for. I think there's so much more meaning and purpose in poetry. And I, I think it gets, unfortunately, undervalued in our profession and we get we get gridlocked into this well what's what's trendy and what's aesthetic well define aesthetic right i i don't sometimes those those deeper philosophical questions i think get lost and that's really where our profession can excel and the magic and powerful part of projects come from that i really enjoyed this conversation with david and sean I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. What we do as architects shapes environments, shapes worlds. Um, is it world domination? I don't know. How many people are going to experience these buildings and how long will they last? I don't, it's certainly something, right? I think I recognize my ability to impact and my immediate sphere of influence is fairly small. I think I would I would lean personal here and I would say that probably the most meaningful thing I can do is is be a good husband and a father. And I think in that order. And as long as I do that well, architect or anything else, I think will follow suit and you know, hopefully that is impactful and it ripples down the chain of time and, and a legacy of longevity and our efforts well spent. Just to be a good human is is is, is important. Uh, be a good father because you are spreading, uh, and I've got a bunch of kids too. So, I mean, honestly, it, at the end of the day, it is all about making sure you're raising your kids well and you are, you're right, honoring your your loved one, in this case, my wife. And uh, so I, I focus on that as well, Sean, and the personal effect. I can't even think of a better way to have impact. Professionally, though, I mean, I think architects are trained, and we talked about this today, to try to solve problems that affect people's lives, hopefully lots of people. Sean, I think the project we worked on here today over the course of time will affect thousands of people in, in, a, in a good way, I hope, right? I mean, and that is impactful. We are lucky to have that opportunity as architects to be able to, to do that. I actually think the place that as architects that we could probably have the most impact is shelter in general. Shelter is a it's a it's a profound problem across the planet, right? It's getting worse and worse. I think the the difference between the haves and the have-nots in in the United States alone has gotten so much so much worse. And the sort of the missing middle that's there. I mean, we have you know teachers, we have you know people in law enforcement, we have all folks that really can't even afford to buy a, a home right now. That's that's wrong. We have to figure out how to solve that. Um, in some manner. Uh, but shelter in general, I think across the planet, if I, if I could change anything, if I could use these talents for good, and this is something I'd like to focus on in the, in the remaining years that I have, I'd like to figure out how to create economical, high quality housing, particularly in third world countries, places that don't have it right now. There is a solution to this. And I think design is part of the answer. But economical and appropriate, and, and I, I would say you know, quick solutions are what we need. I don't have the answer right now, but it's something we've been even talking about internally is how do we take what we know and and do something uh, good with it that affects people across the planet. 
that's something that I would, I would, if we could do anything, that's something that I would love to, to focus on because we've been given these talents for a reason. Let's figure out how to use them for the greater good and not just for the extremely wealthy or for whatever it happens to be. We need to learn how to use these talents to affect the most people that we possibly can. So that's a mission I'd like to figure out if we could in the coming years. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.